0: Hello, open to Eyes for Ears, your Ophthalmology Ocaps and view podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and we're bringing on guest host again, it's the one and only Amanda Redford. Thanks for coming back, Amanda.
1: Thanks for having me back. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and not to diagnose the weird thing on your eye.
0: Each week, we choose a different high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how.
1: This week, we're talking about, or should we wait to yeah, do the case first? Yeah,
0: Don't, don't look at the title. You, <laughs> I swear to God, if you looked at the title. Okay, so, 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 you want me to introduce the. Um...
1: I think you should take the first call. So, Ben, okay. you're called to the emergency department for a 23 year old woman for chronic headache, intermittent bilateral vision loss, and double vision. Anything else you'd like to know?
0: Okay, um, tell me the rest of their history. <laughs> Oh. Just, just lazy. It, just okay.
1: Just,
0: we, have, we have a 20 minute time slot before.
1: Uh, so she has had daily headaches for about three weeks now, seems to be worsening, and nothing seems to make them better. She describes them as being kind of pulsatile and even hears like this whooshing sound in her ears. So does
0: it sound like.
1: Yeah, what's that called?
0: I'm trying to really get it. I've been told that's a relatively accurate representation of whatever this pulsatile tinnitus may be so yeah okay i will go into more about that <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> thank you yeah, no, sound bye. expert fine <laughs> so <laughs> a
0: she, okay, she's go
1: had vision loss that lasts for less than a minute first notice when she was tying her shoes otherwise it seems to feel random when she loses her vision
0: uh did she have any like medical history? Is she using any medications or drugs or anything
1: no past medical history that's really pertinent or surgical history. She uses an over-the-counter acne face wash, but nothing that's prescribed. And no other medications.
0: Okay. You've given me an exam here. Should I just read what my exam is?
1: Sure. What is your exam then? Okay,
0: so the on the note card Amanda gave me it says that we have a young obese woman who appears mildly uncomfortable. Their vision is 20-20 in both eyes. They have no relative afferent pupillary defect. They have f- essentially full color plates, a normal amster grid, and full confrontational visual fields. They have a minus-1 AB duction deficit bilaterally, so they, our eyes can't turn out, and you know, moderate isotropia on cover-on-cover testing. Anterior segments unremarkable, and the finest exam is significant for 360 degrees of disc edema with vessel obscuration over the optic discs without hemorrhages or exudates
1: so what's going on ben
0: okay okay so you probably looked at the title of this episode which is idiopathic intracranial hypertension so this must be because we're in the episode of that this must be idiopathic intracranial hypertension
1: next week on what are you sure are you sure you titled this correctly
0: Let's go through the rest of the uh, episode and try to figure out are we actually sure that this patient has idiopathic intracranial hypertension and what we should do for this patient. Amanda, what is idiopathic intracranial hypertension or as we'll call from now on IIH?
1: It's also known as pseudotumor cerebrae. So you might hear people using that term or pseudotumor for short. Uh, We tend to avoid that because... It can get confused with orbital pseudotumor when you're just uh, throwing out pseudotumor. It was actually first described in 1893 by Dr. Quinkey who saw patients with increased intracranial pressure without a brain tumor and called it meningitis serosa. Later, Dr. Dandy in 1937 came out with actual diagnostic criteria, which has since been updated and you might be more familiar with this as the modified Dandy criteria and that was developed in 1985. The modified Dandy criteria that really defines IIH is signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure, like headaches, transient visual obscurations, papilledema. No localizing neurologic signs other than unilateral or bilateral CN six nerve paresis. So that would be the abduction deficits that we had referenced. CSF can show increased pressure, but no cytologic or chemical abnormalities, so you don't have something else going on that's jacking up the intracranial pressure, causing inflammation there. And then normal to symmetric ventricles must be demonstrated. Bottom line, this is basically, or this is, at its core, a diagnosis of exclusion, hence the word idiopathic in its name.
0: Right. So... You know, that I think underscores the symptoms of increased intracranial pressure, independent of its cause, whether it's idiopathic or otherwise. Maybe we should talk a little bit about what causes each of these signs and symptoms. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Patients have pulsatile tinnitus. It's that beautiful shooshing sound that I produced earlier. The reason that happens is because the intracranial hypertension causes stenosis of the dural venous sinus the one that's near your ear gets thinner gets you know more narrow and then when the venous blood flow goes through it it causes this whooshing sound because it's narrower and there's higher grade flow through it so it's no longer laminar it becomes turbulent and you can hear the sound in your ear that's why it's we you know we call it tinnitus that's how you may read about it in your textbook but i made that sound not because it's a fun sound to make though it is i made that sound to remind you it's not the high-pitched um ringing that most of us keep, you know hear every once in a while so the, the point is it's not the high-pitched ringing that's not what pulsatile tinnitus is it's generally like a lower pitch shushing sound as blood flows through that uh, venous sinus the transient visual obscurations come from the choking of the optic nerve head so when you have swelling the optic nerve head the vessels there are choked so when you translate increased pressure for some reason, classically, it's as we said for this, our patient, the case when they bend over or a significant postural change, it'll choke off the optic nerve head and, and that will transiently decrease their visions, typically in the span of seconds. Amanda, can you explain why they get cranial nerve sex palsies?
1: So, when you have increased pressure in your brain, one of the first nerves to be affected is your CN6, so it courses over the clivus. And that's where it can get uh, compressed and cause a CN6 palsy.
0: The clivus is a bone that um, ascends and then kind of makes um, a sharp angle. So that kind of angle is where the, the 6 nerve courses over. And it's that angle that there's pressure can cause a palsy of that nerve.
1: Which reminds me, we should go back and say that she did have diplopia
0: she did have diplopia. I'm pretty sure you said that in the beginning, but I'm not I stopped 100% right sure.
1: be- I said it in the beginning then I stopped when I got later cuz it said no diplopia.
0: Our patient has diplopia <laughs> that we were discussing. Um, and then lastly there is the sign of papilledema. So just as a terminology thing what the ophthalmologist, what most of the listeners of this podcast will find is optic disc edema, or you could say optic nerve head edema, that's synonymous. And that's the um, swelling of the optic nerve that you'll see on exam. Papilledema is a more specific term that means optic disc edema due to intracranial hypertension of whatever cause. So, you know, when I see a patient I often don't make the call about whether it's papilledema. I usually just say optic bilateral optic disc edema and then I leave it to our friendly neighborhood neurologist to evaluate whether or not it's they truly have increased intracranial pressures. So that's how this clinical picture is all unified they can have headaches they can have visual obscurations from the optic nerve head being choked off they can have double vision or bilateral cranial nerve six palsies from the pressure pushing on the clivus or clinoid Clibus. clivus clivus the clivus and they can have pulsatile tinnitus from the stenosed uh, dural venous sinus
1: don't forget about the blind spot enlargement too
0: Yeah, uh, so why do they get blind spot enlargement, Amanda?
1: Well, your blind spot comes from where your optic nerve enters the globe. And so, if you can imagine it as it swells up, your blind spot therefore gets bigger.
0: Right. The fluid is, it's like literally like detaching the, the retinal layers around the optic nerve. Uh, And they typically get peripheral construction, not central vision loss. The reason they get peripheral construction is you can imagine the pressure from the CSF as if it were a compressive lesion around the nerve. So it'll damage the the fibers in the peripheral optic nerve first because it's pushing on it, and that will cause peripheral visual field loss. And that's actually pretty dangerous because the vision problem may not be recognized by the patient early on or even, you know, into the kind of middle stages of the disease because pe- people tend to not notice peripheral visual field changes. It's also important to know that it should not cause central visual field loss. So that means if you see someone with disc edema, don't make the mistake I made early on in this episode by saying that, oh, this must be like not real, you know, disc swelling because they preserves central vision. And Intracranial hypertension, you expect preserved central vision. And if they have decreased central vision, then you must find another cause. The only way that intracranial hypertension can cause decreased central vision is either by chronic changes to the nerve, like very long term changes where the nerve is basically completely atrophied, or by macular edema that tracks from the optic nerve to the macula. They'll tell you that that is very rare and should be, you know, you should evaluate for other reasons they would have macular edema. Do you want to tell us about uh, epidemiology?
1: As for the incidence of IIH, it's about 1 in 100,000 in the general population, but 20 in 100,000 in young obese women. So 20 times more common Hmm. in specifically young obese women. So that's why ever since medical school, you've always associated this probably with uh, young women of childbearing age. Right. Always, always, always ask about preceding weight gain. It often is in their history if you just pry it out of them. So when they tell you they've been having chronic headaches, ask them, have you been gaining weight? Or? Right. And then ask them over what period of time that's been going on.
0: Okay. So, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff about how IAH presents. So you know, but our patient matches all these things. We said that you know she's an obese woman, the obese young woman who has double vision from what appears to be six nerve palsies, has optic disc swelling, has preserved central vision. Why can't I just call this IAH and go home? Why won't you let me go home, Amanda? Got to rule out
1: all the other stuff, Ben.
0: Oh. Oh, like what?
1: So actually, the differential diagnosis is quite long. There are a lot of different things that can cause a similar picture, starting with medical disorders like Addison's disease, hypoparathyroidism, even COPD and right heart failure and pulmonary hypertension have been associated with it. Wow.
0: Um, A lot of medications can also cause, um, well, it can also trigger an episode of intracranial hypertension. There's many of them. I have a mnemonic. Can I share my mnemonic? Share your mnemonic. Okay. Okay. Okay, here's the mnemonic. Now I yeah, I'll just, let me just share it and I'll give you all my my disclaimers at the end. Okay, so the mnemonic is I love PTC. PTC standing for pseudotumor cerebri, which we said earlier, we don't like it as an acronym, but it works beautifully for this mnemonic. So the I stands for isoretinoin. The L stands for lithium. Keep your eyes out for lithium. O stands for OCPs, oral contraceptives, where there is some controversy about that being an actual cause. The V stands for vitamin A. So that's just like other sources of vitamin A besides the iso cream. The E stands for uh, endocrine, which is kind of supposed to be a catch-all for things like human growth hormone if a patient's taking things like that, or anabolic steroids. Um, Those are the main ones. So E is kind of your hormones for endocrine. P is prednisone, you know, either withdrawal or initiation of corticosteroids could in theory cause uh, or trigger an episode of intracranial hypertension. T is tetracyclines and C is cyclosporin. That's,
1: that's pretty good. Thank you. Other things you need to rule out are intracranial masses like tumors or abscesses. That's the
0: big one. <laughs> Those are bad.
1: Those are very bad like. and they're quick to they're quick to rule out. Other thing, Another thing that you need to rule out is obstruction to venous drainage, specifically a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis.
0: Yeah, that's like one of the big ones to rule out that can be missed unless you specifically look for it.
1: There's also like dural AV fistulas, but more commonly it's going to be your cerebral venous sinus thrombosis if we're talking about a venous drainage issue. And that's actually I think where some of that OCP controversy comes into or what they think is behind it cuz OCPs can one lead to weight gain, but two can also lead to hypercoagulability, and the hypercoagulability then lends itself to developing these venous sinus thromboses. Okay. And another thing to look out for is a Chiari malformation, you know, cuz if your brain's herniating.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, that's bad.
1: We've already alluded to this a lot in talking about our differential, but imaging is a must. You need to rule out some of these things, particularly the life-threatening things on your differential diagnosis. Like? Like the tumors. Those are bad. Yeah. Tumor. Yeah. A CT head is quick to rule out mass lesions and even to look at for that Chiari malformation. But in order to find a venous sinus thrombosis... An MRI, MRV of the brain in orbits is what you really need to evaluate for that. Um, it's also the best modality for ruling out the mass lesion. So if you're already going there, I mean, yeah. that's going to catch that. Other things you're looking for on MRI, M- MRI, MRV is the flattening of the posterior globe, which comes from that papilledema, that
0: the pressure.
1: That yeah. pressure. So 80% of patients will show flattening of the posterior globe. 70% with a will show an empty cella. The transverse sinus stenosis that Ben kind of alluded to earlier is apparently the most sensitive sign on MRI, MRV, and it's about 94% according to one neuroradiology uh, paper.
0: Nice. So, okay, we got their imaging. You know, CT head, if you have resource limitations, if you just need to get the imaging to roll out something dangerous, and then MRI, MRV to definitively roll out other conditions, especially a venous sinus thrombosis. Like the workup's not completed until they have an MRV. Okay, so now we're done, right? We've imaged the patient.
1: Well, how do you know that the pressure, the intracranial pressure is elevated?
0: I don't know. Uh
1: (laughs) 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 so one thing that uh, we'll commonly do in these workups when we're getting down to the whole yes this seems to be an idiopathic intracranial hypertension is getting um, a lumbar puncture elevated opening pressure greater than 25 centimeters of water would uh, would be the sign that you're looking for and no cytologic abnormalities Associated with that CSF fluid that you just withdrew.
0: Right. A lot
1: of patients will actually feel a lot better after you do it as well. This is really what's causing their yeah. their headaches and discomfort
0: and and to that point some people even view the lumbar puncture as just a first step in treatment not ne- necessarily the last step in diagnosis some people feel like if you have this constellation of symptoms and science including disc swelling and imaging to rule out anything dangerous like we talked about but the lumbar puncture is actually to just immediately lower the pressure and to um um and to you know, basically, the initial bolus of treatment that you'll eventually maintain with the medical treatment we'll talk about in a bit. We've so.
1: actually done that in a patient who had a venous sinus thrombosis and mm. had papilledema. Mm. And of course, you're giving anticoagulation to help with that issue. But in the meantime, everything's being affected. So we lowered the pressure with a lumbar puncture.
0: Right. Protects your site, helps her symptoms. Uh, just one note too on opening pressures. You know, 25 is the, the cutoff that, you know, like people say, some things they, like, to look out for are, one, you have to look at what positioning the report the lumbar puncture was done in. The 25 is for, what's it called when you're laying on your side? It's lateral decubitus. Yeah. Yeah, the 25 is for lateral decubitus positioning. If they're sitting up, then that's just going to increase their pressure. If they're coughing or they're striding during it, that's going to increase their pressure. So you always have to take any opening pressure with like a big old grain of salt. Also, the uh, standard opening pressure is different in kids, so watch out for kids. Okay, so we we put the needle in the back and drew the fluid. Uh, how do we long-term treat IEH, Amanda?
1: Honestly, the best treatment is weight loss. Mm. So according to a narrative review by Supermanium, who's actually at Colorado. Oh. He has a fellowship, by the way, people interested in neuro-op. Huh. Uh... So weight loss in the range of 6 to 10% often leads to IAH remission. It helps to enroll these patients in community programs to help them aggressively lose that weight, because that's really hard, and also to maintain that weight loss. Uh, one of our attendings likes to say, you need to lose 20% of your weight. He always says it more, so that way uh, <laughs> people will try really aggressively, and n- normally no one meets the 20% target, but they'll at least, like, shoot. For it and then
0: they'll trend towards significance. Yeah. Yeah. So 10% is enough. Use your judgment. So, in the meantime, they have all this pressure that's threatening their vision long term. Can you do anything while they're trying to lose weight?
1: Yeah. Diamox. Mm. Acetazolamide, you know, the glaucoma favorite. Diamox is the most common thing that we start our patients out with. You can start them on 500 milligrams BID. But we go way past the glaucoma doses. So you can titrate them all the way up to 2,000 twice a day if they can tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And there's a big if on that because not everybody tolerates Diamox. You have to tell them about the side effects. So they can have paresthesias, altered taste sensation, especially with carbonated beverages, Mm. which I thought was interesting. They can have lethargy, develop renal stones. They can have... Stevens-Johnson syndrome, hepatic necrosis, blood dyscrasias like agranulocytosis and pancytopenia and myelosuppression and TTP. So it's not benign. That's a
0: lot. Maybe
1: Uh, uh, just let them know. The most common things are your paresthesias and your altered taste sensation and maybe some kidney stones if they have a history of kidney stones. Do not give Diamox to pregnant patients. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. You're a... you can uh, talk to uh, Faye about that.
0: Okay, yeah, well, our next we, episode, Let's refer uh,
1: you to Kriyx over, over coffee. coffee for that.
0: Yeah, it's a great podcast. And then what about uh, Topiramate?
1: So you can use that as an adjuvant therapy or as an alternate therapy if they didn't tolerate Dymox. One randomized controlled trial showed similar efficacy to acetazolamide. It had the added benefit also of helping with weight loss as a side effect. You can start with 20 milligrams daily and titrate up to 100 milligrams twice a day. It is class D for pregnancy.
0: Hmm. What is class D again? I, don't I think remember. that's a no no. Okay, yeah.
1: Don't get pregnant, folks.
0: The Ice does not officially <laughs> endorse that comment. That was a comment made by your guest, emphasis on guest host, Amanda Redfern, whose tenure on this show is now in question. <laughs> <laughs> can you so you you can do more lumbar punctures if the patient requires it
1: Yeah, you can definitely do serial lumbar punctures but remember every time you're doing that you put someone at risk and I
0: and people don't like putting getting needles on their back so it's not a very unless practical... they're desperate.
1: I've seen some people who are desperate like wow. just give me another one. I used to get them every so often.
0: Yeah it's not the most practical solution but that is a thing to think about. Okay, what about optic nerve sheath decompression? I feel like that this is talked about a lot in medical school, so we're asked about this frequently on our service.
1: I wrote this wrong. I meant uh, fenestration.
0: Yeah, sorry, optic sorry about that. Optic nerve sheath <laughs> fenestration tend to I'll try to avoid compressing, yeah, in my experience. You know, it's a resident. So, what what do you what do you think?
1: Optic nerve sheath fenestration is a good method for temporizing the vision when you have significant or acute vision loss however when you do this there's a risk of vascular injury at the optic nerve head it's not like a benign surgery it's actually a pretty nerve-wracking surgery for most people you, ne- some ophthalmologists do
0: nerve-wracking <laughs> nerve- yes we don't allow puns on this show Redford. we don't
1: maybe i'm taking over
0: you're gonna have to leave okay we'll just finish it okay <laughs> Uh, What else does it not do?
1: It doesn't treat the headache. And it actually has a high fail rate at 12 months, which is why we call this a short-term fix. Right. The long-term fix, if needed, is an LP shunt or a VP shunt.
0: We refer you to our friendly local podcast, Brains for Ears, for (laughs) for more information on the procedures of VP or LP shunts.
1: It's basically the definitive treatment. But we don't take it lightly. We do all the medical stuff first, and it's subject to the same pitfalls that you get called for all the time on consults to rule out papilledema. So these uh, BP shunts can fail, they can clog, they can migrate, you can get infections. So it's not benign either. Weight loss though. Weight loss is a good way to go.
0: Yeah. You definitely try to avoid surgical intervention as much as possible. And that's what we have on idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Do you mind if I do a quick just summary of the whole episode? Mm-hmm. So to review, IIH is a condition characterized by signs of increased intracranial pressure, including headaches, transient visual obscurations, pulsatile tinnitus, double vision from the sixth nerve palsies, and optic bilateral optic disc edema. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, so you need to exclude many different things, especially things like tumors uh, and cerebral venous sinus thromboses or, or, or anatomic problems like Chiari malformations, and do a good review of systems to make sure that a medication that they're taking is not the precipitating agent for the episode. You should always get imaging. In the emergency setting, you can, can get a CT head, but a patient shouldn't be considered having their work completed until they get an mrv of the head and an mri with it so if you're going to take away one thing from this episode get an mrv on the patients who you think have iih you can get a lumbar puncture both for diagnostic and therapeutic reasons and ultimately treatment is up to weight loss ideally 10% or so of weight loss to to cease the disease and acetazolamide can be used to temporize, um, it can be used as medical therapy to lower intracranial hypertension. Optic nerve sheath fenestration can be done to um, temporize significant or acute vision loss, though it has many problems and does not alleviate the central could um issue in iah finally you can consult your friendly local neurosurgeon to consider an lp or vp shunt when all else has failed and that's all we have for this week Uh, if you like what you heard you can follow us on twitter at eyes for ears and number four as well as others platforms like instagram and our website is eyes for ears.com
1: it also helps to rate and review us on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts
0: I think that's all we have for this week. Uh, if you have any suggestions, comments, or feedback about our episodes, we'd love to hear it on Twitter or the aforementioned platforms. Until next week, thanks for your time, everybody. Bye. Bye.